Hello and welcome to the Curator's Salon podcast. I'm Geeta Joshi. I'm really excited today to be talking to artist Sky Holland. Welcome, Sky. Hi, Geeta. Lovely to be here today. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so I'm quite familiar with your art and career, but um, I don't think all of our listeners will be. Can you talk a bit about why you chose to be an artist? Because you're one of these artists that I know as, as you've always been an artist, you know? I mean, I've worked a lot with people who have at some point had a career transition, but I know you're one of these people that actually went to art school and have always stayed you know, in that field. Can you talk about your sort of early creative life and go to art school and stuff? Sure. So, um, yeah, I was born in the 60s, many moons ago, and I was born to two uh, profoundly deaf parents. And at that time, um, there was very little disability awareness. And so I think my growing up was very unusual. Um, I learned to communicate with what we now call total communication. So it was a mixture of sign language, lip speaking. My parents were very bright and well-educated. Um, so they, you know, the house was full of communication, but often it was nonverbal. So, you know, the way a child learns to, you know, uh, what do you call it, imprint and learn about speech um, and the development of ideas was very much based on sign language, which is very pictorial. You'll have some quite iconic signs um, which describe visual things. So that was my first language. So it's not really any surprise that, you know, pe people say I speak with my hands. I'm doing that now, even though <laughs> no one can see me. Um, so, and in fact, when people talk to me and they look away, I stop talking. It's a very natural response where I, you know, as a child, I knew that if someone was looking away, they couldn't hear me. So that's a habit I can't drop. <laughs> like it drives my kids mad. They say, look at me, look at me. Anyway. Um, so my mum uh, was a, a dress pattern cutter and designer. She went to Glasgow School of Art, uh, mould breaking, absolutely incredible bravery and courage for a deaf young woman who basically knocked the gates down until someone let her in. Um, because she was told she had, you know, a, a three options and they were very limited but she was very creative and bright. So they did let her in and she did a, a pattern cutting course there. I think it was very much aligned to the tailoring industry. Uh, but when she'd finished that, she left Scotland and came to London looking for work in the rag trade. So, um, you know, she came with absolutely nothing and promised the family she'd be sending money home and nearly starved in London. She spent two years basically looking for a job and being, you know, having every door shut in her face. But she's got that grit, determination, and the long and the short of it is that she eventually, um, after evening classes at St. Martin's doing pattern cutting, uh, she did actually get her first job. And yeah, the trajectory from there to when I was about probably about 12, you know, she started being quite absent from home. And, you know, I would creep into her dressmaking room where there was loads of patterns and she used this amazing chalk to draw out the, 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 the dress 
on, on this kind of tracing paper and big cutting shears and lots of pins and colored threads. And that was my sort of play area in a way. And my first connection to really making things myself. Um, so yeah, I found her old sketchbooks and defaced them, which I'm ashamed to say, they're really beautiful and I've still got them in my studio. Uh, and I've made a little video actually, which is up on my social media of, of leafing through the pages. And so yeah, it's no real surprise that I got to art school. Um, however, I wanted to be a vet first. So that was a strange sort of thread between loving nature, animals, horses actually and then eventually going to art school. Yeah, so I was constantly surrounded by creativity, if you like, and this nonverbal communication and interpreting the world through signs and visual messages. And uh, it seemed that, you know, my, my own development as, as a young artist and being drawn to make things and draw and look at the world around me. Uh, I wouldn't say I was encouraged by my mum. She had such a tough journey, and it's exactly the same thing as I said to my kids, don't you go to art school. <laughs> um, and they're both creative, and they're both being creative in very different ways, but they didn't. But I, I of course, disobeyed every bit of advice, and you know, I, I worked hard to develop a portfolio and yeah, I got into Central St. Martin's after a year foundation at Wimbledon. And it was probably the most incredible and joyful um, experience that four years. Uh, I just lapped up every second. Um, it was amazing. It was in a beautiful building uh, designed by Lutchens in Southampton Row. And I remember running up first thing in the morning, the spiral staircase up four floors to the, you know, the, the fine art section. So, yeah, it was really great. After graduating Central St. Martins, did you just take up studio practice? What did you do? Well, it was the end of the 80s and Margaret Thatcher was in power. And there was this whole move towards creating an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial business and encouraging that. And there was a scheme, a graduate enterprise program. And my friend, my best friend and I, we were both graduating together at Central. We both got firsts in printmaking. And we, had, we went for it with a, a really wacky idea of putting art on screens. And we ended up being selected as the wild card, the sort of black sheep of the whole program because <laughs> Bless my, bless my friend Julieta, she didn't know, you know, what the cursor of a computer was or why it was flashing in a particular place on the screen. That's how kind of backward we were with computers then. But we went to Cranfield and we literally got a kind of business uh, education in, in a few short weeks and we launched our studio in Whitechapel. And it was amazing. It was near Petticoat Lane in Broome Street. And that was the beginning. So time went past. I got pregnant and met somebody and got married, as life happens to people, you know. 
uh, and Julieta and I went our separate ways. She's, she went to the Royal College eventually and we're still best friends. She makes wonderful art. And um, I ended up going to South Africa with my husband, who was an architect, because it was the, the end of the 80s, there was a terrible recession. And uh, our, our, we'd done up a house in Teeting and we ended up moving um, to get work. And we got a great contract in Johannesburg. And I said that was the only place on earth I wouldn't go with small children. And uh, that's the place we ended up going. And it was just survival at the time. We were both creative. So we, we, we took what we could. Supposed to be two years, ended up being 10. And being the most incredible experience for all of us, really. My kids got to grow up in a mixed cultural um, environment, understanding all the problems around us, socioeconomic, but it was exciting because Mandela was being released and he got elected as the first black president in the whole history of South Africa. And because I could sign, I got asked to audition as an interpreter for the whole election process on TV to all the hearing impaired and deaf viewers in South Africa, which at the time they, they numbered about 2.4 million. And there are 13 <laughs> official languages of the, the new ANC constitution. So can you imagine, you know, they said, can you do this? So I said yes, and they put me in a box and I just, they, they did not understand proper sign language interpreter protocol. And I did it for hours on end. I mean, basically had to kick a Coke can against a door to let someone know I was about to fall over. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was Causa, Zulu, all sorts of things. And I just had to kind of make it up in between when I didn't understand a spelling or something. But I met Mandela three times and was involved as well with an amazing art education outreach program which um, was fabulous at such an exciting time where we brought black pioneer artists to the attention of school learners um, in very underprivileged schools and environments. And we had an art bus and mobile workshop and then ended up creating four workbooks. And so, yeah, I look back on that time with I mean, you couldn't have made it up, really. It was fantastic. But obviously, you know, Joburg was a troubled place and we left eventually for our kids to be in a safer environment as teenagers. And yeah, of course, there was the connection with wildlife and the bush, which we would never have had, you know, if we'd stayed in London and had a more urban existence. Um, we got to go and visit beautiful wild places and with no electricity and walk pretty dodgy surroundings, probably for small children. But yeah, that's where my love of wildlife, nature, my connection to the wild world was seated, really. Such an amazing experience though, like South Africa in the 90s is, yeah, I mean, historical really. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, I don't totally see the reference, um, the influence of 
wildlife in your work, which is still some, you know, I mean, it's even bigger and more powerful now than it probably was, you know, when you were um, at art school without having been to, you know, more sort of wild and open spaces. Let's talk about when you returned back to the UK, um, your art practice. So how had that evolved at this point? Because you said you were originally trained in printmaking and I know now you still do a blend of painting and printmaking. How has that, how has your work actually evolved over, yeah, since returning to the UK and now? Well, all this time in South Africa, I, I did exhibit, I was always making work and I exhibited in a few exhibitions and they were mainly sort of self-promoted and finding collaborative spaces with other artists. And I worked with a, a premier printmaker called uh, Philippa Hobbs in South Africa. And because, you know, we didn't have a print studio, she actually taught me uh, a woodblock um, colour printing process, which was hand done. And I loved the fact that that kind of connected me to nature itself, the very fabric of it. And, um, but in terms of, you know, an exhibition and, and sort of the normal trajectory of an art exhibiting and making career, I, I definitely, you know, life definitely came first. The children arrived, schooling happened. You know, I had to put, help put food on the table and a roof over their heads and give them a decent home and have friends. And so I taught, I taught in a little art school called um, Dragonfly. And so I had wonderful connections with all their friends and some adults. And um, when I got back to London, again, they had to be housed, rehoused in a new area. And they were doing O-levels, A-levels. And, and then it came to a point where they really had grown up. And I looked at myself and thought, my God, you know, I'm 40. What have I got to show for all this learning, for all this you know, incredible education, I really want things to happen. So I found eventually a studio in Southwest London on Eelpai Island. And by then I was living in Twickenham. And I started looking at art fairs and shows and trying to develop my work because there wasn't really a consistent language. I had, you know, I was obviously good at drawing, good, good at art making, but I hadn't developed a, a language or a narrative in what I was saying that seems to be very important if you're creating a career path that other people can understand. So it sounds like you had a bit of time for self-reflection, but also to maybe plan what you wanted ahead. I think this is something that we go through life without really thinking about what we actually want and what makes us feel good, especially in the work that we do. What, what was the outcome of that for you then? Well, I did a lot of business training as well through the whole period till now. I think self-development is very important, not just as an artist, but you know, you need to be good at marketing and all these other things. So I was trying to network in a business community that was local and meet other artists. But you, they always talk about, you know, finding your why. And that was the bit I had to dig deep because I love so many things. I connected so many things. You know, I'd land like a butterfly on something bright and colourful. And my mum often calls me a magpie um, for that reason. But actually what happened was David Attenborough and all those amazing planet Earth 
series on TV and the, the growing awareness publicly of, you know, endangered species. And of course, you know, rhino and the illegal poaching and the very last West African black rhino actually became extinct about five years ago. And I was moved to, I just couldn't sit in my studio and not react to that. So I made this five foot by four foot painting and I had moved by then into ink, using inks and a very, how do I describe it? It's kind of a splashy style where form emerges out of layers and the way ink flows and moves and sort of accidental slash intended marks. They're like calligraphy that you're almost writing. But uh, yeah, anyway, this, this form emerged and he filled up this huge bit of paper and I wrote, I called it sold. I mean, it sounds a bit naff now, but you know, I think what I felt was we'd sold out. We were selling out and now of course, you know, fast forward a few years, we're in the sixth wave of mass extinctions and we're witnessing absolutely experiencing climate change and seeing all the wildfires and, you know, cheetah, leopard, lion are all, you know, endangered now to, to a bigger or greater extent, but they are they are endangered and it's impossible to imagine that we can't, you know, halt this journey or at least slow it down and be more mindful in our own lives and practices. And blimey, well, COVID has kind of brought it all home to so many people. Just sort of that, you know, put aside the suffering and people who had it or families who've experienced loss. I'm not talking about that, but the fact that people would have to go to pause. And so many people reported connecting with nature, experiencing clear skies, you know, a lack of pollution, actually having time to notice things. And that, I think, yeah, I, I, I want to say those things in my work. And I think that's, that is my why. You know, the bigger issues of mass extinctions, uh, climate change, and loss of individual species, and people experiencing COVID now, which has, you know, forced a lot of people to stop and notice what's around them. That, that thread has been running through my work for a long time. And I'm specifically interested especially with my recent series called The Fragile Earth. They're in a round format, which seems very obvious, but somehow it's like there's no, you know, it didn't seem relevant to have a rectangular space. I kind of wanted a free-flowing form that had no beginning, middle or end. It was just circular. And within that, I create what I refer to as a sort of equilibrium, so it's this, this idea that we need to be in harmony with other energies, natural world, look at COVID. This is where, you know, our encroachment into wild habitats has kicked us back. 
like really hard. And, you know, it's not that I want to beat anyone's brow about this, but it is so interesting, this word equilibrium. And it's the core of what excites me when I'm composing a piece. So actually the composition itself is always about equilibrium anyway. When you're composing a piece, you know, there's balance in it. Um, whether you use colour here and something happens over here, that's, you know, it's a counterbalance. So you're, you're taking a viewer's eye around your piece. Well, that's actually, there's a sort of parallel to the physical world and the scientific world. And that excites me. I love that idea, though, composing the picture or the artwork itself, you know, as a reflection of, you know, the, the global balance that we need to get as well. I love it. Um, I know you've done some art fairs and you're selling more directly through the studio and things like that. Can we move on a little bit towards your, how you manage your art business? I think that would be quite interesting for our listeners. I know you sort of have done some business training because you've mentioned that already. What do you think are the main, I mean, like, how did you start finding more of your own audience? Let's, let's start there. Well, Gita, it's a work in progress and the landscape's changing as we speak, isn't it? I mean, what I thought I knew a year ago has completely transformed. I'm sure this is a common experience for, for most of us um, creatives and, and, and other people in business. We're trying to read the landscape, but it's pretty difficult right now. However, so what you asked me was what I was doing Yes, I, I went to international art fairs. I was doing the affordable art fairs. And I, what I did, which was interesting, was that I went collaboratively with either a gallery or another couple of artists and we'd share the wall space. Um, you know, that I learned all my lessons. I had made every mistake in the book and that encouraged me to really develop a growth mindset. And actually, you know, due diligence, not being lazy, um, understanding contractual issues, having to do your homework and make sure you are in a contract. Make sure that when you're putting money on the table, you understand where your space is going to be, how the public will see it, what the ethos of that gallery is. And, you know, I've been ripped off a few times. I've got a whole body of work with some rogue dealer in the US that I can't get back. I can't even find it. It's about 10 grand's worth that went to Art Miami and never saw again. And so... Oh God, that sounds outrageous. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, that is so bad, though. You know, I mean, people... I think artists can get yeah, quite vulnerable in that position. So, yeah, contracts is a massive part of that. Um, yeah. You've done fairs yourself as well, haven't you? Sorry? You've done fairs where you're self-representing as well, haven't you? I have, but that was really expensive. You've got to make sure that you have developed your audience consistently over time before you get to an art fair. You know, okay, you've got 20,000 people footfall through, your, through the affordable art fair tent, but there's a gazillion other artists there. And if, you know hundred other of those are either with a gallery or you know they've done their build up to the fair over not just 
the last three months, but literally consistently getting out there. And I was doing it all for myself. And I found it really, really tough because you've got to put budget aside, time aside for your marketing, for your PR. You've got to be your own master at, you know, packaging, unpackaging, drilling the wall. And it's, it's bloody hard work. <laughs> I mean, I do enjoy the vibe when I'm there. And it's lovely to actually meet people and engage with them on your stand. Um, but it is like four days of, wow, you know, and you've got to collect all that data. And then afterwards, you know, you've got to, you, you can't just take a few days off and take a breather. You, you've got to follow up. Such great advice, though. I mean, yeah, there's definitely so much more going on behind the scenes in the run-up for sure. I mean, this is why I always say, like, if artists are doing fairs, that they need to build an audience first so that they've got the fair is an event that they can actually invite that audience to, which is how most galleries would do it. I mean, sure, the event brings its own audience, but uh, it's not going to be so reliable. Um, however, you know, we've talked quite a bit about fairs, but there's less and less in-person events happening now. How have you found... Um, marketing and keeping that audience engaged and consistently growing it actually through these months of lockdown or and as it looks like you know we're going to be still working quite remotely you know for a, for a period ahead yeah so trying to get a grip of what everything online means you know how how to best project your work and present it online um, when there is a sea a literal ocean of other artists doing the same. And because, you know, if you're being viewed through a tablet or with an iPad, you know, that, that's a very different um, prospect to someone coming and seeing the quality of your work, the texture, um, how the paper looks, <clears throat> how beautiful it looks on a wall, how they can visualize that in their living space. So I've taken advantage of things, you know, these apps where you can upload work to a kind of virtual living space. And I'm trying to get in the head of people that might enjoy my work in their homes or in their offices. Yeah, so as well as just the visual and competing with everybody else with how beautiful everything looks, you've actually got to try and have those conversations with people that enable them to connect with you as a person, but also, you know, engage them with your work, like what's going on with it. You know, don't assume that if you're talking to people, they might not know, you know, how to look at art, how to look at your work. You're not just talking to other artists or people in the art business. You're talking to people that might need an entry point, might need something explaining and I try to get into that mindset of opening that conversation and asking questions. So, you know, ask me, ask me questions, ask, you know, don't feel afraid to say, I don't understand this. What's that about? What, why circle? Why, why have you got a leopard? Why are you drawing wild animals and you live in London? I mean, it's not a question. <laughs> it's quite hard to answer really, but <laughs> we do live in a virtual global world. So I guess there's, you know, but those are very relevant questions. And yeah, I, I think like a lot of people, what I need to do more of is stand in front of the camera and talk to people. 
And of course, you know, I don't, I'm not good at that yet. But um, I think when it happens, it really, it pays off. Because you're real and personable. And I think that is what people really want to see. At the end of the day, I mean, it's still a person-to-person transaction, whether they buy it or whether they engage with you. At both ends of that transaction, even if it's a conversation and not a purchase, it's still people. And I think people buy from people, right? I mean, that's always been said in business. So to get personality across in your captions is massively important. And as you said, you know, using video more. I mean, I think we're both really talking, or I think of Instagram when you're talking, and I think that's your main platform as well at the moment. But yeah, getting on camera, I mean, it's not my favourite thing, but I've also had to sort of really just power through the discomfort until it becomes normalised. I think a lot of artists are still showing pictures of their art and not themselves ever. I don't think that anonymity helps. Um, I don't think it helps create trust in you as an artist brand and all that sort of thing. So I think, as you said, you know, earlier, like having a growth mindset, and that can be in the sort of even things like the daily interaction on social, using your own voice, turn of phrase, and then, you know, camera on top of that as well, or video on top of that. Um, but from um, the other thing is, you know, I, I still have the gremlins on in my head that were my the painting tutors at Central St. Martin's who I could imagine would be horrified (laughs) at how commercial some of my behavior is and some of my artworks become. And, you know, I I get that sort of inner critic going on and it's so ridiculous. I just want to flick it away and just put it away because it's not helpful and they're not here now, (laughs) you know. Half of them, some of them are still making work. John Stezaker, I see, still exhibiting at the Listen Gallery. And, you know, I'm not, you don't always have to be academically, uh, you know, in approval or have wish to seek the approval of the gallery system or the people who you revere and think of as top dogs. You don't have to. And that's the amazing thing. The bar to entry has gone. It's gone. It's been removed. I mean, you know, you can, you can, it's never been so easy and it's never been so hard. That's what I would say. And I think you just need to remain soft, um, agile and be prepared to switch up a bit, you know, try stuff, really screw up. It doesn't matter. You know, what you put yesterday will be forgotten. Um, we all want to make our page, you know, our, what is it called? tablet the nine squares look beautiful but sometimes you fuck up and it's just the way it is and actually you're human i love it i mean i think this inner critic that you mentioned and sometimes you know those are still voices echoing from our past what will people say you know and i actually wrote a post about this quite recently but it it just stops you doing so much and then you have to really ask i mean how is that serving you because if you're not getting your work in front of the people who, are, who love it, if you're not connecting with them, you, you're just doing a disservice to your people, you know? I think, um, yeah, this inner critic really kind of holds so many people back. And I think the idea that there's, a, there's only one way to do it isn't quite right either. I think everybody can bring their own personality to social media. I mean, it's the reason why influencers have that influence because they're usually being more authentically themselves. 
that we kind of find ourselves following them. I think this is where artists really struggle. You know, they want to sort of have this very polished uh, personality for social media. And um, yeah, it doesn't always serve them. But the other, you know, I, I remember approaching galleries and, you know, they would see that I had a shop on my website. I could just feel <laughs> the, the sort of the drawback and it's that you're not behaving in a way that, you know, was going to fit with them marketing you or you were too out there already or I could feel that. But that's changed. I believe that's changed. It's changed so quickly as this situation has unfolded. It was going through change through Brexit, that whole period where, you know, art sales, well, it was a free-for-all on social media, really, that has, you know, naturally upturned the whole of the original gallery infrastructure and system and the power that galleries had over artists. You know, whether you were self-taught or you were trained like me or you had life in between then and now, I mean, I've only been doing this practice full-time with no other means of support for five years. I've had a whole lifetime of kind of doing it, you know, as well as other things to bring in cash. And I'm teaching now, I'm teaching online. I've, I've got um, online drawing classes and I'm learning about an e-learning launch and it's always learning. It's exhausting. <laughs> but I kind of enjoy that journey as well. It's exciting. It keeps me engaged and always developing. And I've got two millennial amazing grown-up kids who both kick my ass and also coach me and give me advice and give me feedback. And they're like miles ahead in terms of tech. And so it's brilliant to have them giving me, you know, I'm not in an echo chamber by myself. Amazing. I think having that support around you is so important. Otherwise, you know, it's easy to fall into despair or wonder why you're doing it. So, no, well done. That's, that's awesome. Sky, it has been amazing talking to you. I am going to add in links to your website and social handles and everything in the show notes. And I will also be adding pictures of your work to the blog that accompanies this podcast episode. Thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, thank you. It's been amazing. It's really lovely to chat to you. The Curator Salon hopes you enjoyed this production.